Welcome to the Bible Archives. Today we're getting into Genesis chapter 14. And if time permits, we'll also connect this chapter to a more highlighted, more popular chapter, Genesis 15. And the context of all of this is the covenant has has begun through this person named Abram and this tribe that he is creating. And so Genesis 15 is incredibly important because this is one of the first images we have um, explicitly about the workings of the covenant. Genesis 14 is a less popular chapter, but I think it might actually be important for understanding the centrality of this narrative and what they're trying to say about both Adonai and Abram himself and how this tribe is going to work. So it becomes a really important chapter for the platform um, of the covenant that is to come. And you got to remember, if you, if you are following along, the last couple chapters, we saw the covenant begin, and then Lot and Abram split up. So that just happened. And now we get a um, kind of a geopolitical description of the ancient Near East that, you know, the author is trying to situate Abram in the midst of. And so in some ways, chapter 14, view it similarly as you might to a genealogy, right? It's, it's setting the context. It's setting the scene um, for the situation that's going to be the base of the content for the next several chapters to come. Um, but this also plays a role in showing Abram in the context of, of power. Here we're going to see Abram very clearly described as a tribe, not just an individual. And this is going to sound like a military epic. Okay, Abram is a character, has allies. Uh, there's, there's a report given by an escapee. Uh, Abram has trained men. Um, so all of this is important for where the story is going to go. You know, the, the auditor or the editors and authors are, are trying to set you up for how you're supposed to see Abram, how you're supposed to see the covenant, how you're supposed to see uh, Adonai. Um, and, but this also does some other things to the reader uh, because this brings in a scope that you didn't see at all in uh, Genesis 1 through 11. So this is taking us into a more of a historical environmental approach than um the whole first section of Genesis did. But it does surround this sort of military epic, and it gets real confusing real fast. Oh, yeah. This cast of characters looks worse at first glance than an elvish battle list from the Silmarillion. But if you hang in, you can find out that you really only have nine kings to keep track of, besides Abraham, so, or Abram, I should call him. So I um, hope I get these names right. We have Chetor Lamor, who is the king of Elam, and he had uh, four guys or three guys that he was fighting alongside his allies where Amaphrael, who is king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elassar, and Tidal, king of Golem. And then they're fighting with the kings in that area. So these kings that they're fighting against had been vassals who are now trying to, um, you know, revolt against them. So we have Bera, who is the king of Sodom, which will become important, and Bersha, who is king of Gomorrah. So those are two names that are probably familiar, about the only names that to me were familiar were the names of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, but then we have Shinab, who is king of Admah, and Shemeber, who is king of Zebohim. 
And then there is another unnamed king, and they don't know whether it's the land of Bela or the land of Zoar. I think it kind of depends on, you know, who, who is writing. So the scene opens with this invasion then. The Dead Sea region is being invaded by that alliance of those four foreign kings. And they defeat the opposing Canaanite kings. They round up these prisoners, and one of the prisoners that they round up is Abram's nephew, Lot, who you may remember in the last chapter has gone off from Abram and settled in the area near Sodom. So it's hard to tell what this whole chapter is really about. It could be a later insertion into the earlier story of Abram and family. Um, the scholars call into question whether this is an historical event or not. It's hard to tell who is writing it because it's not J, it's not E, it's not P, any of those sources that we mentioned back when we were talking about Genesis 1 through 11. So whether it was written at an earlier date or whether it was written later or whether it was historical or not, um, it's important because what this does is it provides us one of the only external references to Abram. It places him in a historical context rather than as a literary figure. So before this, we've seen him in kind of a narrative genre style. And now he's put in a situation that could be historical. If this is historical, it means that he himself might have been an historical person. So these arguments are so obscure. Um, there's a lot of biblical scholars trying to decide between whether it's historical or not. I tried to look up a lot of things there are many learned papers, and many of them are written half in Hebrew, so I was not able to read them. But I did have some points that I will quote from particular scholars. One source is a man named Nahum Sarna, is someone who I have leaned heavily on his research. He's a professor of biblical studies at Brandeis University, and he has this to say. He says, Our narrative provides a perfect example of biblical historiography. The aim is not the simple narrative of historical events, but their use for the illumination and illustration of the biblical understanding and interpretation of the historical process. With the intervention of Abraham, the nature of the account changes abruptly and transforms from a secular record into a religious document. So what I think he's saying here is that it's not just a simple narrative about a historic, an historical event, but this changes it into something that is important to Israelite religion, Israelite history in connection to that, and then their perception of who God is. And then we have a scholar named Alice Deccan from um, the University of South Africa, and she came to a particular conclusion. She feels that the four kings might represent the four quarters of the earth, and that the writer is invoking this image to correlate Abraham's defeat of the four kings with his access to the promised land, and then the expansion of God from the God of Israel and to God of the whole world. She says, My suggestion is that the writer is invoking an image of sovereign hegemony and the four quarters in order to correlate Abram's defeat of the four invader kings with his access to the promised land and with the accession of the God of Israel to the God of the known world. So we're expanding the power and the influence of both Abram and of the God of Israel. The use of the four quarters, she goes on, as a metaphor of hegemony imposes a structure on the episode. The four invader kings are first defeated by a foursome comprising of Abraham and his allies, and then compares and opposes the newly instituted hierarchy of which the king of Sodom ranks down at the lowest, followed by Melchizedek, who is a character we will meet, who is both a king and a priest, and then Abram, who is neither one of those things, he is not a king or a priest, and then finally God. 
So this foursome accedes to all the land that was recovered from the invaders, establishing Abram's claim to the promised land and God's hegemony over the whole world. So that that gives us a picture of what this might be trying to say about um, Adonai specifically and how Adonai's relationship with history and uh, geography is important, um, but also about Abram and that it's trying to make a case for who he is and the, the right to like physical land, um, but also power and um, notoriety, mm-hmm. you know, making a case for that. And, and what's interesting about this whole story, like some of these names are familiar. Salam Gomorrah, obviously, that's going to come up in a few chapters, but like Shinar, that's, that's a relatively well-known and well-referenced place throughout the rest of Torah. Um, but this this story is all in all quite unfamiliar. And even in the details that the author gives, and I'm not even just saying for the modern reader, for um, even more ancient exegetes of this text, it's very hard to discern what is going on. Yeah, And that's one of the interesting things about the Bible as a whole is some things are referenced that are so contemporary that the author just seems to assume you're, you're going to know what I'm talking about here. Right. Right. And as soon as you get, but a couple of generations away from that, it seems like some of these stories, and this would be one, but there's several examples throughout, throughout the Hebrew Bible. And even in the new Testament, it's like, what is going on there? We, mm-hmm. we don't have access to this, but this is supposed to give a portrayal of the Levant. Okay. And, and you know, it's, in reference to a period that's probably unknown to most readers, including us, but it's it's centralized around the common geopolitical situation. You know, these vassals are rebelling. It's giving a situational context to the land that becomes Israel. And that, if you get nothing else out of that section, that's that's important. Um, I do appreciate the narrative flourish given in reference to the uh, kings of Saddam and Gomorrah about the bitumen pits um, and the uh, strange death they experience uh, at the expense of, uh, you know, these pits. Um, But that's going to be important for Saddam and Gomorrah as we get toward chapter 18 and chapter 19, because if you remember, bitumen plays a role with Babel, which however Babel, it's also going to play a role with Egypt and Exodus. And so I think the, the author wants you to see Saddam and Gomorrah through that same lens of modernization, uh, technological and civilized progress, um, centralization at the expense of the whole. Some of that language that we used about Babel should be seen with Saddam and Gomorrah. And remember, Lot chose that territory because of its advancement, its prestige, its potential for, for ease, um, and so now we're getting a critique of them, and we're going to get an even heavier critique of them in a few chapters. Um, but also, I think the narrative focus of Lot is important in this too. And, and most Bibles will have a section heading um, of something about Lot being rescued or, or something like that. Um, because remember, Lot chose the ideal land, and now look what happened to him. Look what he found himself in. He loses everything. And Abram, the one who had to take supposedly the less ideal land, um, he finds out and he comes and pursues with his clan and he liberates Lot and his clan. And so you would think if, if you know, you didn't know anything about this, the later story, 
Uh, you would think that when Lot takes the ideal land, you know, he's going to be the one who one day will save Abram. Yeah. And now it, that's reversed. Um, so that gives us a, an image of, you know, remember, Lot went eastward and that whole territory was described with these things that we'd go, uh-oh, that's like a warning sign. Um, and here you go. You find you find a situation where that becomes true. Yeah. So now the story has handled some of Abram's context and has started hinting at this picture of God. Um, and now that uh, portrayal of God is going to go a step further. And it really does feel like all of this in chapter 14 it's meant to give you some background on the Levant, um, on, on the Canaanite-Israelite situation of that territory. Um, and when I say Levant, I'm talking about the uh, Israeli-Palestine area that we're familiar with today um, al- along the, the coast of, of the Mediterranean there. That's kind of called the Levant. Um, so it, it gives us a little bit of that context of, our, all right, here's the situation of what that land was like, because it's relatively unknown, mm-hmm. but it's also trying to give us both uh, sociological and theological descriptions of Abram, the covenant, and God. And, and all of this is leading us to what's going to happen um, in chapter 15. Um, so we meet, we meet a, a new character who yeah. is one of the most mysterious enigmas of characters in the entire Bible. So tell us about who we meet next. Okay, well, Abraham has been victorious, and the king of Sodom comes out to uh, meet with him in the Valley of the Kings. Sounds just like a Lord of the Rings setting again. Um, And also another man comes out, and this is a king priest by the name of Melchizedek. And this is a very obscure story. It seems like Melchizedek is some kind of Canaanite king priest. He invokes what appear to be Canaanite gods. And yet Abram pays a tithe to him as if he were a priest of a later temple period. Because, of course, there was this point. There's no temple. The name that both Melchizedek uses and Abram uses is El Elyon, God Most High. Um. It's certainly close enough to the name Elohim, who we have seen before as a name for Yahweh or God, the Israelite God. And it's probably an indicator of how close the early Israelite religions were to the Canaanite religions. I would say that there are times that, that they are almost indistinguishable. But Melchizedek is described as the king of Salem. And this is an apparently a early reference to Jerusalem. Um, and so the detail of Abraham tithing to him as if to a priest, and if he is the king of Salem, which was going to become Jerusalem, um, it seems to indicate that this is a story that maybe was inserted later to add a little legitimacy to the temple process. And that would indicate a peace source or priestly source. But actually, this chapter doesn't seem to go from any one of the sources that we've been familiar with. Um, Nahum Sarna, who I've referred to before, has a theory that this incident with Melchizedek was once part of a fuller narrative, so that maybe this character Melchizedek was someone who would have been well-known to the readers, and there would have been an expectation or an understanding of who he is and why he was behaving the way he was. That's one theory. (laughs) You tell us another one, Tyler. Well, first of all, you know, you keep referring to Lord of the Rings, When I'm reading about, you know, this war, this battle, here we are, the king of Saddam coming out, and there's like this debriefing treaty process that's going on. Like, I just have Game of Thrones in my head. Okay, Of all yeah. these, like, clans. And it, I'm, 
maybe that's an inappropriate uh, metaphor, but I seriously think that Game of Thrones might be one of the most relatable ways to understand what's going on in the Bible as a whole, because it, get, it gets <laughs> like that very often. Um, but when I'm thinking, when I, as I'm reading this story of uh, Melchizedek, um, I do think it's a possibility that this is a portion of a larger text. Okay, so you do agree with Sarna on that? I think it's a possibility. Okay. Because it does seem um, uh, almost like immediately intrusive right. to the story. There's also some other ways that we could think about that. But um, I guess my approach in when, I, when I read this story is I, I just, I try to, I'm almost reading it like a poem of how do these pieces connect what's going on here mm-hmm. in the names are important. So we meet a king. Right. We're told that this guy's a king. We're going to be told that he's a priest, but initially we're just told he's a king. And Melchizedek just means king of righteousness. Right. Or king of justice, which has been phrases that have been really important so far in Genesis. Right. Noah is talked about as being righteous. Okay. Um, the lack of justice is something that has been an issue within Genesis 1 through 11. So here we have the king of justice or the king of righteousness. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that that's in contrast to all these names you just read where we're told king, whoever. Right. And they're from, and here's this place. Right. Where's Machilzadek from? It doesn't say. We're not really told like what his kingdom is because Salem is just the word peace. Oh yes, that's true. Like Shalom. So I understand the connection with Jerusalem, mm-hmm. um, but that also is, it's just used in the city name as a stand. It's the word peace. Right. So I would maybe even say that Jerusalem is uh, named based on the word Salem Salem's not a location, at least not one that we know about in the ancient world. Possibly not yet. Uh, no, and it becomes it becomes right. a very common name. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's places in the United States now that are called Salem. Well, sure. And then um, I think Jacob, doesn't he come from Shechem or someplace similar? with a very Shechem. similar name, Shechem, yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I read about this, it's the king of righteousness or justice, the king from peace who has bread and wine, which again, not important to Israel's story now, becomes really important to Israel's story as as the narrative goes on, and I'm thinking post-Passover right. and Exodus. Um, he's a priest of the God Most High, and, and we're told that, that, that we're given this description of maker of heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's like assisting this transcending location component that we started hinting at in the first part of 14 or what's this God, God of what land Well, all of heaven and earth. Right. So it's starting to get into that. And then this is the part that I think is most important. Melchizedek blesses Abram. Yes. Well, through the God most high. Right. Uh, the maker of heaven and earth. And you did, then you get this pronoun complexity. There's a problem here because Abram, purportedly gives a tenth of everything um, to Melchizedek. The blessing part seems uh, aptly descriptive of Melchizedek blessing Abram. 
And I do think that this is uh, intentional. And it may be because what it shows us is kind of a pre-fulfillment or a minor fulfillment of the covenant that we saw in chapter 12, because here Melchizedek and God are blessing Abraham. So Abraham's name is being blessed, and he's blessed by God, and he's blessed by Melchizedek. So we see not only God, but a kind of a significant person, human being, blessing Abraham. Yeah, and that that whole section there so that's we're referencing verse 19 here he blessed him and said blessed be abram by god most high maker of heaven and earth mm-hmm. and then melchizedek goes on to bless god most high because of the situation that just happened of the enemies being delivered into his hand right and all of that now the confusing part comes at the next place because um i think it's verse 20 end of verse 20 where your English will probably say, and Abram gave him one-tenth of everything. In Hebrew, it just says, and he gave him one-tenth of everything. And there is some confusion on, is that, and Abram gave Melchizedek one-tenth? Yeah. Did Melchizedek give Abram one-tenth, or did one of them give some other him Mm -hmm. one-tenth of everything that they had as far as I know, there's no consensus on how that should be read. Not really. And part of the problem is, is that this whole little section here about Melchizedek, this whole little story is like literally dropped into the part about the king of Sodom. So the king of Sodom comes down, they talk a little bit about goods and people, and all of a sudden, boom, you get the story of Melchizedek. You could literally pick this section out of the whole narrative and it wouldn't even change Mm -hmm. it. But there is some argument about, so is Abram tithing to Melchizedek? He is he Melchizedek tithing to Abram? Um, and there are some arguments, but one scholar, her name is Amy Jo Levine, and she says that she feels that most scholars would say that it's Abram tithing to Melchizedek. And her reasoning is, if that would be a normal thing to do for Abraham to tithe to a priest who Melchizedek is supposed to be, right. would be the normal way of doing things. Whereas if Melchizedek, as a priest, was tithing to Abraham, that would be unusual enough that they would probably mention by name Melchizedek tithe to Abraham. Or he might say, you know, Abram took the tithe from Melchizedek. So it would probably have been more likely pointed out. Now, one of the problems here then is... Why would Abram, who's supposed to be creating a distinct tribe, be tithing to this king priest Mm -hmm. of righteousness, justice, and peace, and having bread and wine, and all all of this stuff? Why why would Abram do that? Um, And if it is Abram tithing to Melchizedek, what is he tithing? Are are these the spoils of war that Abram is giving uh, uh, to... to get rid of them, so it's not on his hands, or is this a way to say that Melchizedek has helped with the effort? And so, because we hear the word tithe, right. and we think immediately of like offering played at church. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily, the tithe just means a tenth. But a tenth of what, and, and why? Um, another way that you could look at this is, is this a vassalization effort by a the king of justice, righteousness, toward Abram? So Abram is paying a vassal tithe to Melchizedek, which would place him under Melchizedek. That's a way you could read it. I think that there's a different emphasis here. 
because it is very likely that this is an insertion. Like you said, you can be yeah. reading. Uh, what what would that be? Verse 17. Uh, yes. And you could skip right down to verse 21 mm-hmm. and wouldn't skip a beat. Nope. So it seems like a possible insertion. Um, but you could say this is portrayed as an aside, but the imagery is almost dreamlike. Yeah. There's a narrative flourish here where... It's like Abram is in this conversation, this debriefing treaty with the king of Saddam. And then all of a sudden, um, whether because of, I don't actually mean this, drugs or something else. There's this, there's this moment where if you're watching this as a film, it like flashes to this other scenario where time is paused. And Abram has this interaction that seems really important for the Jewish people, the, the Israelite covenant. Because... You have to ask, who is this guy, and w- what do we do with this? And, and the only other, um, the only other, uh, what's the word, reference to Melchizedek that we see, um, we don't get another one in the Hebrew Bible, as far as I know. That's a direct. Only in Psalms one ten. Okay, so, uh, and yeah. then and then the Book of Hebrews in the New Testament yes. refers to Psalms mm-hmm. one ten mostly, yeah. and um, you know you could uh, imply Genesis fourteen mm-hmm. from that. Uh, what do we do with this? Now, if you're someone who takes on the name Christian, the book of Hebrews makes an argument. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which would make you want to pay attention to what's going on with Melchizedek here. And mm-hmm. also be interesting. Why isn't he a priest in the order of, you know, say the Levites or the actual exactly. priest, you yes. know, so it's a little bit subversive, but here's what I find most interesting about this. Abram according to Genesis 12, Mm -hmm. is supposed to be the one doing the blessing. Someone from outside of the tribe who has not been called, has not been brought into the covenant, is doing the blessing here. And Abram, the primary person of the covenant, seems to be giving allegiance to this person who, without any notoriety from the text so far, is the king of righteousness and justice and peace all descriptions of the ideal leader and king of all of the prophets is described here as somebody from outside of the clan, outside of the covenant that Abram, like the forefather, is paying allegiance to. And this should this should shake things up a bit about any sort of insular, um, intolerant uh, perspectives of the covenant itself. I think it's supposed to smash some of the imagery that Abram's been giving this blessing and he has to do these things and do these things. And then right away, it's a, no, somebody else, you know, is doing the blessing here. And Mm -hmm. Abram, the person who's supposed to be doing the blessing is receiving the blessing. It just shifts that whole thing up. Um, And I, so I think this insertion is very intentional and I think it's supposed to shape the imagination uh, for how the covenant goes on. Okay. Um, especially just righteousness and justice are the two words that are used to describe the covenant from here on out. Okay. So almost a personification maybe. Yeah. Like, and it's, yeah, it's like when they talk about this possibly being a character that people reading the story would be familiar with. Maybe that's why, because this is a person who has a larger than life picture of what yeah. that covenant is supposed to be. Yeah. I, and I think the dream like, approach is helpful because I don't know that we're supposed to imagine a real person here. Right. This is the embodiment of something and it's from outside of the constraints 
of the covenant that were given just a couple chapters ago. Okay. I often um, hear this story used as an argument for um, it, God works through those you least expect. And mm-hmm. be careful trying to put constraints around how this is supposed to work because they will get transcended and it's going to continue to include those outside, 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 and they get brought in. Um, And so then to say Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek is pretty interesting. It does Um, put that in a different context. Yes. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see something else in Exodus with Jethro, who is a pagan priest. Mm -hmm who sets up the administrative movement of how Israel will work from there on out. Mm-hmm. Um, who does God use to shape the covenant the most? Well, yeah, Abram and Moses and those, and then Jethro and yeah. Melchizedek. Yeah. And even when we get to chapter 16, we'll be talking about Hagar, the Egyptian slave, yeah. who it seems like if you're reading the story and you didn't know the ending, you might think that Ishmael is going to be the son of the, you know, the son of the covenant. But even with her, it's like, She's one of the first people who gets a promise from God that's almost like the one that Abraham gets where she says, where God says to Hagar, your son will become yeah. the start of a mighty nation. So that's kind of interesting because she's another person that it, things work a little bit outside the box with. Yeah, uh, there's a sort of um, unexpected, surprising inclusivity that's going to continue to be yeah. a part of this covenant. Um, and I think we're getting an image of that here. Th- this This story should... Uh, cause us to trip up a little bit. Like mm-hmm. what the king of righteousness and justice and the, this priest with bread and wine, who's also the king of peace, who's talking about the God of heaven and earth. That's supposed to be Abram's job. Yeah. And here's this guy doing that. What's going on here? And then it jumps right back to, and then the king of Saddam and uh, it moves right back into the details. And chapter 14 ends with the king of Saddam takes the people Let's Abram keep the goods, and they, they kind of have a discussion about that. And you'll notice that at the end of the chapter, Abram uses Melchizedek language, almost like yeah. this dream happened, you know, time paused, and then Abram learns from this mm-hmm. and then takes that into the real situation. And it also appears that Abram doesn't want to be indebted to this guy. So right. He says he won't let, you know, he won't take any goods from the king mm-hmm. of Sodom because he um, didn't want to be enriched by him. And, and so there's this you know, process of how they're dividing the spoils. And mm-hmm. um, that's going to become important as Abram continues to try to show dependence on God. And as I get done with um, Genesis 14, I have this question of, is Abram portrayed positively here? He's portrayed as, you know, like a tribal warrior, warlike ruler. But... He also, the thing that he's supposed to be doing, it happens in this chapter, but not by him. And we talked about in Genesis 12 through 13 that Abraham's, Abraham's not necessarily, you know, this all good all the time, just follow this pattern and everything will be good character. Right. And again, in Genesis 14, the blessing's happening, the land is coming to fruition, it doesn't really seem to be by Abram's doing. Um, Melchizedek seems to have a greater role in this. Abram still kind of seems like he's out for him and making sure he's protecting his stuff and doing, because even, even when he kind of denies the process with the king of Saddam, it's, you know, so I 
protect myself in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm not here to do anything righteous. You know? <laughs> Let's right. not be fooled. That's Melchizedek's job. That, that's kind of how it feels. So again, we're left with that question. Is Abram portrayed um, positively? And, you know, I'm not going to conclude that. It's just we tend to overemphasize a positive um, implication of Abram all the time. And I just bring up that maybe that's not the case. Yeah. Now, we made an argument for that uh, last time on what theologically why that might be the case. And, and I I stick with that. I, I think that's a good way to consider it, that it's saying more about God in the covenant than Abram somehow making all of this happen. Um, so it really humanizes and allows us to be participants in the covenant as well. If, you know, somebody as banal as Abram's making this happen. Right. Um, so I think that's important. But again, like we said at the beginning, all of this is to, I, I think, it's an effort to set up Genesis 15. Because Genesis right. 15 becomes a central chapter. And so, so far in this, we've seen um, a particular depiction of God and a particular depiction of uh, Abram in relation to the land. Mm -hmm. Um, And you had brought up that God seems to be transcending what the normal deity would Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because there was this deeply embedded idea in the psyche of the ancient Near Eastern mind that your God was connected to the place you live. And for example, if someone were to come along and conquer you, that was the end. You'll hear us talk about this because it's a motif that comes up often. But the unique and amazing thing about the ancient Israelites is that they came up with this idea of a God who is, as this said, El Elyon, God of king, God of heaven and earth. So this is a God who all places are God's places. And so this kind of creates a situation where we're, we're about to go into this a very official ritual, legal kind of contract that God is going to make with Abram. And we now know who those two people are. So we have a God yeah. who has the right to do this because God is the God of creation of all places. And then Abram is set up as a person who has come in and then conquered these, these different kings. And yet... You know, again, it's not really through Abraham so much, but through the power of God, because he only had, what, 300 and some guys, yeah, supposedly. That, that's important and yet to point he was out. able to conquer, you know, four kings out of those. And uh, and so that's what we're setting up then for chapter 15 is to decide, because this is, we'll see later, kind of a legal contract in the ancient mind that happens between those two. Who is God in this contract? Who is Abram in this contract? And why are those right. things important? God is not constrained to particular places. Right. And Abram is justified in being able to uh, have a place in this land. Yes. Now that that's been said, it moves on into um, almost a kind of refrain to Genesis 12. Mm -hmm. We're going to hear God speak again, make promises, Abram respond, um, and and some actions are going to happen to tell us more about the covenant. Okay. So this is kind of a, a motif that we're, we'll see, and we'll see it again um, right. in, in a little bit. But let's just start walking through chapter 15. So these next chapters return to the subject of reiterating the covenant, expanding upon its meaning and the shape of it as a legal contract. But it also has an abiding bond between God to Abraham and Sarah's descendants, which gives us a picture of a God that's very different from the surrounding nations. This is a God with whom a person can make a legal contract because this is a God who is not capricious. It is unchanging. Um, And some of this 
is from the... Wait a second. Yeah? You're using big words. Okay. What do you mean? Which words did I use that was too Capricious big? Capricious and unchanging. What does what does that mean? How, how does that relate to how this god is different? Oh, okay. Well, a lot of the gods of the surrounding nations would be... Capricious just means that they are do things on a whim. So whimsical would be a word you could use. It's this is these are gods that see humans as their slaves, as not really worth much, and they're not really connected to their gods in that way. Hence, you wouldn't want to make a treaty exactly. with them. Yeah, you wouldn't yeah. make a treaty with them because they might just change their mind and decide to kill you. Right. Yeah, and and Israelites God, Israel's God is very different from that. Israel's God is a God that is unchanging enough that you can depend upon this God to make an and a contract that is going to be eternal. So it isn't just going to end with Abraham; it goes into his descendants, into the land, and all these eternal ideas. So um, some of this that we're about to read comes from our priestly source, and some of it comes from our our. Jay or Yahweh's source. But to me, it's a story that you can read like a novel. There's plot twists, there's intrigue, there's this complicated emotions that we'll see. Um, we'll see how the covenant is recognized. Who really is the rightful heir? We'll get into that. And then later on, even how will the women play out roles that they have? So, you know, to my mind, in the right hands, you could turn this into an epic movie or some kind of a, a series, you know, talking about the Game of Thrones. In the right hands. In the right hands. <laughs> that qualifier is important. <laughs> yes, please. So we start chapter 15, and we start with a return to the story of Abram and Yahweh's covenantal relationship. So God reiterates his protection of Abraham and the blessing that he is giving to him. But then Abram points out that blessings don't mean much if you don't have an heir to leave anything to. All that Abram has at this point is a slave named Eliezer. Now, there was a common legal practice among the Hurrian people, and we've mentioned them before. We have another example here of where the patriarchs are following a Hurrian practice. And these were a people who lived around the area of Antioch, Syria, and somewhat north of where Abram and Sarai came from, from Ur. And they had a huge influence on the ancient cultures in that area. Are, are we talking like Bronze Age? Iron Age, Bronze Age to Iron Age, yes. Okay, Bronze Age to Iron Age. Right, same uh, time period as Abram and Sarai. Uh, and, and, and so this would have been um, kind of in that Levant area. Yes. Before, before a lot of empires began dominating the scene. So Absolutely. the Bronze Age is marked as a time, uh, it's very nomadic, very tribal still. Mm -hmm. Nobody's sort of risen to power yet. The Hurrians are... Almost a, an archetypal or prototypal example of the people of that region at the time, right? Who who actually have um, artifacts and archaeology that's been found. Oh, sure, they they were real people. In fact, um, I think they say the Armenians may be a people who evolved, you could say, out of that group of people, or or they were the then the descendants but so of them. The Canaanites, so sure. did the Hittites, so mm -hmm. did the Israelites. So. Um, now, the, the Hurrians are, are worth reading more about if you're trying to understand the ancient Near East, you know, before Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, all of that. Right. Uh, they're, they're kind of their own uh, sort of people there. So mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and archaeologists know a lot about them. Um, there's a couple of towns that they've dug up and found a lot of things. Um, one of them is the town of Nuzi, and there they have found thousands of legal tablets, writings, and... You'll see that it helps us to understand these stories because a lot of times we read these stories and we may think, well, this is just 
made up or this is just an idea that Abram had or an idea that Sarai had about the way they did things. But these were actual ways that people dealt with things in different familial relationships, legal relationships. And um, so we have this error. Well, we have, or rather, Abram has a slave, Eleazar, and it could very well be that Eleazar had been adopted by Abram and Sarai because they did not have a biological heir. This was a common thing to do in the Hurrian culture. It's also possible that Eleazar is produced from a concubine. That could happen. We see that does happen, Which would be troublesome for uh, some depictions of human sexuality based on the Bible. Oh, absolutely. I just bring it up because it's it's a uh, complex issue. Oh, to, wait till we to get into know. chapter 16. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Okay, very good, very good. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't say where Elias... Well, actually, it does. It says he's... Actually, it does. It says he's a Damascus, from Damascus. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, he could have been adopted because that was an established custom yep. of childless couples in the ancient Near East. They would adopt a slave if there was no heir. Um, at any rate, though, whoever Eliezer is... God makes it clear that Abram will have this heir directly from his own line. It even the line is out of your own body. And he and and God takes Abram out under the sky and says, Count the stars, because this is the number of children you will have. This will be the number of your descendants. So it's a covenant about land, but it's also a covenant about you will have heirs and descendants to live upon that land. And, and they'll be direct, not indirect. Right. Direct right. heirs from Abraham biologically. Mm-hmm. And that's important. Um, but God does make kind of a provision here. The land is, uh, right now settled by the Amorites and God tells Abram, your descendants are going to have to wait because the line says the iniquity of the Amorites is not until the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. So it is at this point, not complete. So it's almost like as if there is a lease agreement. You could compare this to that where a person may have a house. That tenant isn't doing well in the house, not taking care of it. They're going to remove that tenant and move another one in. But that doesn't mean that that new tenant has any special relationship. There's no higher status here. And it turns out to be the case. Yes, Abraham's descendants do have this promised land. But if they don't interact with that land as well, they themselves end up losing it at different times. Which, you know, that enters into the conversation on Deuteronomy and the the threat, the imminent threat always of exile right. and uh, being vacated from the land. And, um, you know, this all takes context of that depiction of the deity-land connection. Mm-hmm. You know, a deity gets to determine who's on their land. Right. Well, here, uh, Adonai, in this case, you know, God Most High, if we want to use language from chapter 14, gets to make that decision about all the land. And, you know, Adonai is the God of Israel. Adonai is also the God of all the earth. So the Amorites even are under Adonai's jurisdiction. Right. Um, so we might wonder, like, why is that Amorite inequity thing? Could God not control that? And I think it's more a picture of God. Um, God's the God of all of them. So God doesn't have to wait for the Amorites to do something. God's allowing the Amorites to live there. Right. Until their inequity, inequity becomes great. Mm-hmm. And then it'll go to Abram's tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Abram's tribe better be darn careful because exactly. they could be removed as well. Yeah. Um, and that kind of all goes back into that deity land connection. Mm-hmm. Um, if we want to, uh, let's go back and, and hit a couple uh, interesting images okay. that I noticed about the text. And the first one, uh, you know, 
you're, the way you frame this covenant is really helpful. It's about heirs and land. And if you remember, those are the two promises and the blessings given to um, Abram and people in general. Multiply and, yep. and fill the earth. So have heirs. Right. So that needs to be part of the covenant that Abram's going to have an heir because they need to multiply and they need to multiply in a way where their tribe then continues to make the blessings happen in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also that they will receive land. So I've been told about that. So you're right in going, this part of the covenant is addressing those issues. So it was, hey, those promises are going to happen. Great. Now, it's, and how exactly? There's some, <laughs> yeah. there's some issues here. But the first thing that uh, is brought up, and I find this interesting, is that uh, God says in verse 1, So Adonai came to Abraham in a vision. Um, I also think that is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adonai does not explicitly uh, manifest God's self in person to Abram. That it's might all. be a peace source thing. It's a, it's a vision Okay. Right. Anytime that God's presence is implied, it's usually through something else. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to get pictures of, um, this, this God is different than most of the deities in this way as well. Right. Um, and I think that goes to some of the tetragrammaton language, the unspeakable name, Mm -hmm. um, all of those metaphysical conceptions of transcendence that Israel's moving towards here. Um, but I just, a lot of people go like God showed up and spoke to me. And I think it's helpful to say like, so, you know, Abram, you know, like the forefather of the covenant. Uh, yeah, he's, he's working with visions. Um, the fact that God showed up and directly spoke to you, like you're like higher up than Abram here. That's yeah. amazing. Wow. Uh, we should be writing about you. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a little tongue in cheek there. Um, it just, I, I, I think it's worth pointing that out to folks of yeah. how does Adonai interact? How does Adonai communicate? Well, this is a vision. Um, and yeah, it's complex. But Adonai says, Abram, do not be afraid. I am your shield. And I think it's really easy to bounce right past that and to see it as nice esoteric language. God is our shield. God is our protector. Right. Yeah. What did we just get done reading about? military conflict mm-hmm. and there's a chance because Abram was successful how is Abram going to try to get his land through military conquest Ooh, yeah and so instead of um, Adonai saying okay Abram here's your shield and your sword Go make it happen. You and these 318 trained men that you got here. Right. Instead, God says, um, I am your shield. How is this tribe going to survive? I think you could make a case. I'm not saying this is the only way to read this. You could make a case that it won't be by military expedition. Right. So God's kind of saying that's off the table here. So before we talk about heirs and land, we need to be sure we, re- we realize how this is working. I'm the shield here. Don't think you're going to go and take over the world. And then it moves into the childless conversation. So um, first, uh, this is the first response I think we get by Abram. I think so. Um, so far, we haven't really had a response, uh, you know, even in the first example. 
Abram just starts walking as God is speaking. Right, like, like I, said, I am listening. Here we go. I got my stuff and I'm ready to go. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so every, every other instruction, there's been the silent obedience. And this is the first time that um, Abram responds. And it seems that of all of the responses Abram gives, Abram only responds and speaks to God when there are doubt and questions involved. And every time this happens, uh, Abram's righteousness is brought up. So when Abram silently obeys, we're not told that it's credited to him as uh, righteousness. Okay. When Abram says, no, wait a second, this doesn't seem right. Explain this to me. I've got some questions here. I'm not going to, you know, have blind faith in this. Mm-hmm. That's when we're told, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So I, I just, again, I think that's something to point out because we don't normally pay attention to that detail. The righteousness comes through rebuttal. And so start practicing your rebuttals to uh, the divine <laughs> because that's how righteousness occurs. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. I just point out that that's what the text says there. Right. Okay, that's how mm-hmm. it's portrayed. Um, and then we brought up uh, the Eliezer of Damascus. And I think this shield conversation leads to the conversation on heirs and descendants. Because if if they're going to survive the socio-political turmoil, which we just saw is a little bit intense in the last chapter, that leads to the problem of, okay, God, you're going to be our shield. Great. We're going to survive. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to survive, how are we going to you know sustain our tribal ancestry over time? And so, okay, now we have to talk about heirs. Right. So I think there's a progression here. It's not going to be military conquest. Okay. So therefore we have to have more children. Mm -hmm. How's that going to happen? Okay. So then we address that. Now we get the stars. Um, And, you know, the the image of the stars kind of affirms what's going to happen. Notice it doesn't answer Abram's question about what's going to happen with an heir. Oh, well, you know, it'll be like the stars, Mm -hmm. Abram. It's almost (laughs) like, I hate to say this. I'm not trying to be, you know, trite or, or not taking this seriously. But it almost like God saying, I haven't quite figured that one out yet, but it'll be like the stars. I'm telling you, it's going to be really good. Um, But how will Abram know now that his sustained tribal ancestry that will be like the stars is also going to have land to do that on? And so I I just bring this up to see there's kind of a progression here, not Mm -hmm. military conquest. Okay. You're going to have heirs. That's how you're going to sustain heirs need land. Okay. Now let's handle that part of the covenant. And it does seem like this is just handling the complex issues that were implied in Genesis 12. Mm -hmm. And they just got to keep working this out and it's in a conversation. And I just like the portrayal of this conversation and handling the issues. And it almost feels like they're having council meetings trying to go like, and how's this going to happen? What are we going to do? Exactly. Um, and, and that's how Abram knows. That's how Abram has faith is through that process. Right. And here, this is where this moves into the confirmation of, that all of this is going to happen. They use a, a ritual contract. Yes. That was a common practice in the ancient Near, Near East. Mm-hmm. And what we're going to witness next in the chapter is they're going to sign uh, a contract of protection and um, descendants with land. Right. So it's going to, now this contract's going to handle all the things we just saw get brought up. And um, we've got a lot of details to cover here. I'll, I'll start by saying there's some vassal language in here. And it also is something that would be used as a peace treaty. Mm-hmm. 
And that's both of those things are going to be important as the covenant continues. So Deuteronomy, especially, and even the book of Numbers is going to use some of this language um, and how it talks about the covenant. Um, So what we see here in Genesis 15 has lasting effect, lasting importance for the Jewish imagination. We also need to see that uh, this is a very normal process. Yes, it was. What we're about to read. Mm -hmm. For us, we read it and we're like, Abram's on drugs. That's very weird. What is going Mm -hmm. on? Um, It's not, though. It's actually quite normal. One of the things that is abnormal, and I think you're going to go into this a little bit, is usually this does not happen with divine beings. Right. You already brought up. You don't normally enter into contracts with deities anyways. Um, But as far as I know, there is no evidence of a deity doing this specific contract with anybody in, in any sort of mythology or history or anything. Nothing that I've ever seen. It, it's reserved for human leaders. Mm-hmm. And usually it's pertaining to, you know, war treaties or land agreements. And so it's interesting here. We Military expeditions, not going to happen. I'm right. your shield. Yeah. You're going to have heirs. That's how this is going to survive. Not, mm-hmm. not through conquering people, but through uh, your, your descendants, your ancestry. They're going to need land. Okay. The, here we're, let's handle the land. And so the, the sort of war treaty, peace treaty, land contract, um, land agreement. That's all. Now we're going to see it all happen in a ritual act. Um, And this is called a lot of different things. But again, this is something that we see um, in in ancient Near Eastern history. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When you talk about how is this going to happen, here's where we get the picture of how it's going to happen. Because this is a very well-known to the reader legal contract that would happen. And basically what they do, and this sounds really strange to us, but if you've you know, read this, they will take an animal and they will cut the carcass in two and they will set it to either side. And then those people who are entering the contract will walk between the, the pieces of that animal. It's as if to say... I will take on what has happened to this animal if I break this contract. Mm -hmm. Now, one detail about that with the animals that I found interesting was um, a lot of the local people, the surrounding cultures, would use different kinds of animals, sometimes horses, sometimes donkeys. Here, Abram specifically uses animals that will later on become clean, considered clean for ritual sacrifice. So we have sheep, you know, uh, turtle doves, a ram, you know, goats. And so these are animals that would have been acceptable. And particularly the levels of yes. the sacrificial system. That's right. Remember, you had mentioned uh, there's a priestly source influence here in this chapter. Yeah. We also saw this back in the flood narrative. Right. Where where the animals are talked about differently. And one, we particularly get the, this, this reference to clean animals. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's almost like anytime the priestly source, you know, <laughs> wants to uh, put a, their hand in the text, <laughs> exactly. they, they bring up these things. And, uh, that, but that, that is particularly interesting here and helps make a case for what makes this unique. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, these animals, be, they'd be split in half and you gotta, you gotta imagine this. There's a ton of blood. If you cut a bowl in half, can you imagine? it's going to bleed. And, and, uh, you know, they, if you just read this text in Genesis 15, they give you the imagery split in half, laid out mm-hmm. path in the middle, that path's going to be covered in blood. Right. Well, you know, that's what you're going to walk through. And you make the, that point you made is important. Because we, we don't think about this as a contract. You got to think about this as, you know, your your landlord handing you a contract and saying, you sign right there. Mm-hmm. 
walking through the blood is how you sign. The effect being, if you don't hold up your end of the deal, it's not, I'm going to do something. It's, you're going to be like the animals that you just walked through. That's right. Very tactile. Maybe we should, I'm just kidding. I was going to say, <laughs> maybe we should bring this back. No, but it's a very tactile way to uh, depict that. Three-year-old, by the way, in this just means adult. Okay. Right, yes. So if you're wondering yes. what that details for. Mm-hmm. Grown animals, right. Mm-hmm. Um, you also get this information about ensuing birds of prey. Mm-hmm. The carrion, the Again, the these are unclean birds, so he's keeping them away. Unclean birds that have to be kept away. Now, they also have some symbolic meaning for other cultures. Oh, that's true. Particularly yes, the Egyptian god Horus. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Or even the identity of a king in some of these uh, cultures. And remember, I think that connection is important because later, part of the covenant is God's going to say, you're going to be, um, they're going to discuss Abram's tribe's submission to Egypt. And so here we've been given a picture of, you know, Egyptian encroachment and getting them away. And Mm -hmm. they're not part of this. And, you know, later they foreshadow what's going to happen in Exodus. So I, I think that's, um, those are some interesting parts, but yeah. what else do we need to know about this this treaty, this contract process? Well, we have an interesting, again, dreamlike uh, sequence that you might want to talk about a little bit more. But what happens then is that after Abram has laid these animals out, darkness falls, and it says that Abram falls into kind of a trance state. A deep and terrifying darkness falls upon him, it says. And to me, it brings to mind Jacob's dream at the place he names Bethel, where he, where God reiterates the covenant then to Jacob. So we got a little bit of foreshadowing maybe here. Another interesting thing about this is because Abram's dreaming, um, we, there's a smoke pot and a flaming torch. So we have smoke and fire, which often represent the... Uh, pillar of cloud, yeah, pillar, the pillar of fire. Yeah, the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke. It represents the appearance or the presence of the divine. Mm-hmm. Passes through these two sides of this carcass, and yet Abram does not pass through. And that detail becomes important then. So then in that moment, God declares to him that covenant. It says he will live to a good old age. His descendants will eventually take possession of the land from the river of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates and proceeds to then name all the occupants of that land. And that's a list of 10 nations, which to me just means all of those people. Yep. Um, and so we have that going on. And then we have the status of the two parties involved. So this is a treaty protocol. Like we were saying before, normally this would be a treaty that could either be enacted between equals or, in this case, of a king or a suzerain, which is like a leader, making an agreement with a subject. So it's about tribute and obedience given in exchange for land and protection. So this is the way we're going to make this covenant go through. And it usually follows a particular and specific kind of pattern. There is a a preamble which identifies the parties involved, so God, Abram. Some kind of history is mentioned between them, so we've already had the conversation about who Abram is and who God is, and we see a little bit of that in chapter 14, and then the stipulations of the treaty. And that follows that pattern. But again, what's remarkable about this particular covenant ritual is that God alone passes through the animal. And this means that God has the obligation to keep the covenant, not necessarily Abram. So it cements that unchanging nature of the covenant of the God of Israel. So unlike those surrounding gods, this is an immutable promise. This is a God that will not change God's mind about this covenant. That covenant will stand forever. 
And you have to picture this, right? Yeah. We, we Remember what I just said about the vision? Mm-hmm. That uh, Abram has a vision in which God communicates. So here, if the, the contract's going to be signed, the parties have to be present. Right. So when we read about this uh, terrifying darkness and Abram's asleep, it's because Abram can't experience the presence of God. And as the divine presence shows up, it's terrifying, yeah. which is why you can't come in contact with it, mm-hmm. which is a, not a, a uh, sign of disrespect, but that's a sign of respect Absolutely. for transcendence. Mm-hmm. Something that I think modern Christianity has lost by making it so personal and uh, you know tangible and we can reach out and grasp it and it's right here. I love how, uh, hey, uh, so God's going to show up. We're going to have to put you to sleep. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be scary as hell. Yeah. Uh, the presence of God is also often harrowing. Yeah. I love that imagery because I think it's it's um, theologically uh, astute. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that happening um, is important to understand what's what's going to come next. And so then you get the smoking fire pot um, and the uh, the flaming torch, fire cloud, fire smoke. That's Mount Sinai imagery, that's Exodus imagery, that's that's a huge notion of the divine presence, Mm -hmm. and it passes through. Um, Now, you do get, right in the midst of this, you get a recap statement of the covenant, and that would be important. That's setting up the terms of the contract there. Mm -hmm. Right there it is. Um, And then uh, there's also this fourth generation reference. So you remember, uh, until the inequity of the Amorites is complete, and it seems to be given now, and in the fourth generation... It will be complete. Mm-hmm. And and I kind of read that as it's setting up a justification for takeover that they're going to need later. Hey, we're in the fourth generation. We were told that uh, we can go ahead and kill you all now. Yeah. You read that however you want. But um, the, the emphasis here is that Abram doesn't go through. So the protection, the land, all of that, that's part of the covenant both parties are supposed to walk through. Yeah. The same, if I hand you a contract, I sign, you sign. All right, now we have a deal, whatever we stipulated there. And the stipulations have happened, you know. Um, what are the ramifications if Adonai walks through for both parties? If if Adonai signs God's line on the contract and then reaches over and signs Abram's line, Right, if you're if you're renting property, and the owner signs and then says, you know, I'm going to sign here. Mm-hmm. What does that mean in terms of the covenantal relationship? And that image is so important for a number of different reasons. First, being in in if Israel doesn't uphold their end of the deal, Adonai will take the punishment. And what's the punishment? that you will end up like these split in half animals. So I, without getting into atonement theory here, right. the implication in the Jewish imagination mm-hmm. is that if Israel fails, God has to die. Wrestle with that. And and I know penal substitutionary folks are going like, oh yeah, yeah see, it's right there say, in Genesis 15. Amy Jo Levine may not agree with you on this, but I can't speak to it yet. It, but... <clears throat> If Israel fails, Israel is not going to be killed. No, they didn't that's sign. true. Right. Something has to, it has to be placed in the hands of Adonai. Yeah. To me, Adonai. that's the immutability of the covenant, that God isn't going to change God's mind. 
no but matter what happens, the, I, I this like, covenant will take place I li- somehow. I like going that furthest extent of, mm-hmm. well, then who's going to be punished? Yeah. Somehow God signed that part of the contract. Justice has to be served, right? Mm-hmm. And the justice won't come back on Israel. Uh, and, and that's something to keep in mind as, as, you know, people talk about, you know, God is merciful, but with justice. Right. Uh, well, according to the covenant, the justice isn't coming back on Israel. Justice is coming back on God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that complicates how we look at that exile pattern. Okay. For sure. Um, but the other thing here too, is just with the signing, and this might be what you're talking about with Amy Jo Levine is um, it puts all of the responsibility in God's hands, which as we've seen so far, Abram ain't nothing special. <laughs> Not particularly reliable. Israel then too is nothing special. Yeah, they mess up over and over it's, again. It, the the importance is placed on Adonai. Right. Israel ain't going to have nothing to do with the success or failure of this. Mm-hmm. It's all going to be Adonai. And, and that, you know, as I talked about before with divine will and transcendence and imminence, that depiction, I think, is really important. That whatever is going to happen here with the covenant within history is dependent on the divine, not on the sentient, yes. not on the finite, not on the mortal. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's intended mm-hmm. uh, by this contract imagery as I well. I think so. Um, that does bring up an issue, though. Okay. If it's not dependent on the mortal, and this is a problem you get into with free will. Mm -hmm. If God's going to do this anyways, if God is taking responsibility, if God is going to uh, be be the originator and the sovereign um, determinant of history, why doesn't God just do it? If if God has said, hey, Israel, you're not going to be responsible here. Look, I just signed both lines of the contract. And why does God let all of this other stuff happen? Why doesn't God just go, boom, land, blessing, bang, everything's good, reverse the curse, bring it all back, paradise. Why doesn't that happen? And that's a fair critique because that is a complex part of this. It's very complex. And the problem that we get into here is uh, God has, in, in discussing the terms of the contract, God had said, so listen, fourth generation, mm-hmm. y'all are going to be slaves mm-hmm. in Egypt. This ain't going to go well for you. That too comes back to God then. And now we're starting to get into cosmological, ontological, metaphysical conversations about existence and free will, theodicy, mm-hmm. all of those things. Um, and I think, first I would say, this is a story, not a philosophical treatise. So right. we, do, we need to interpret based on the story. But second, it is a fair conversation to have as you watch the story continue. We might, we're watching the story, we're reading about the story of Israel and history and covenant and human nature and all of those things. We might also be reading a story that is walking us through the journey of what divine even is, what human even is, and how that might work out within history itself. That's one thing I really like about Judaism is they go, you know, theology, y'all are strange. Ethics. Yeah. That's being, that's important. Um, And so, yeah, philosophy and theology, that's involved here. But the importance is to go, all right, so we could start with the, the, the precept that 
God could have just made all of this really easy and instead allow slavery. Instead, um, I like starting from the Jewish angle, which is slavery happens. What does this tell us about God? Um, exile happens. Mm -hmm. The destruction of our people happens. What does this tell us about the world we live in? Right. And they wrestle from there, not from, you know, what are the metaphysical tendencies and characteristics of divine logic? It's, <laughs> it's a different way to approach the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's more Eastern, by mm -hmm. the way. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's just something that I think is fair to get brought up. I think so. But I would say as we read Genesis 15, we should be that, that image of the blood path contract should be in your head as you go yeah. throughout yeah. Exodus, uh, throughout, um, throughout, throughout the Kings, um, throughout even the prophets and how is God going to interact with the stuff that's happened, um, and then I really do like, I know you're going to, you're going to squirm a little bit here. Okay. I really like, um, understanding because I do not think, I do not think anybody should ever read the gospels or the new Testament without understanding all of this stuff first. Oh, I agree with you for that. Uh, that doesn't make me squirm at but all. But seeing Jesus through the lens of the blood path and using Genesis 15 to help understand atonement, I will argue it does not take me to penal substitution. Right. I, I don't I don't adhere to penal substitutionary atonement. Right. So I'm not saying it has to lead there, but I do really like looking at it from this lens of how could that inform what's happening with Jesus's death and therefore resurrection. Oh, absolutely. I think that all these stories deeply influence the gospel writers, the people who wrote about Jesus, who knew Jesus, and then their view of who Jesus was. It almost, you could say, how could it not? They knew these things so well. And when they saw the events that happened around Jesus and his life and his death and, and you know, the way he died, surely this would have gone back to them and gone, mm -hmm. why did it happen this way? We can look back into our history and answer some of those questions. And it's not yeah. the same as saying these people are predicting it. I, I, you know, I'm sure you wouldn't go there either to say that these things oh, are yeah. meant to be a prediction, but they are certainly a way of, of, of the early followers of Jesus, the early Christian, if you can even call it that quite yet, church, um, looking at Jesus, looking at Jesus' life and saying, look at the person that Jesus was. This is how Jesus was the Messiah, and this is why things happened the way they did. Yep, and using their the memory of their tradition yeah. to inform that. Mm -hmm. um, I And I just bring this up because people are quick to go, Jesus is like the Passover lamb. Right. Jesus is like the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Jesus is like the suffering servant in Isaiah. Right. All of which aren't supposed to be predictions, yes. but are helpful to inform as you look back. Absolutely. And, and we're, we're um, offering a very specific angle. A lot of Christians go, see, look at Jesus is in Genesis. And we're mm -hmm. going, no, no, no. Genesis happened and that helps inform who Jesus is going to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, I never hear anybody go, how does Genesis 15 inform Jesus's death? We're, <laughs> we're quick to do it with Passover. We're oh, quick absolutely. to do it with Leviticus, with mm -hmm. even the prophets. Why not Genesis 15? Because it seems we, important. Yeah, privilege certain texts over others. And I think it's only because we haven't understood it. Yeah, this is a difficult thing to understand. Unless you do that, that work mm -hmm. of seeing what this means in the context. Right. You would never think that this would have something to do with atonement. Right. But somebody has to die here. Yeah. And it's an, it's, it's a contract. So, mm -hmm. so we'll table that. And uh, okay. hopefully that if, if we do um, the gospels ever, we'll sometime in 2036. <laughs> who, who <knows>? if we're <laughs> still yeah. Um, but that's something for people to consider just yeah. as they're wrestling with the different 
implications here, but hopefully Genesis 14 makes way more sense to you now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it does to me um, just after having uh, just prepared for this and had this conversation. And hopefully Genesis 15, um, all those pieces kind of came together. Right. Um, we hope that as we keep going through Genesis, that'll keep happening. Um, it, it, once you get into like the prophets and into even even first kings or samuel some of the imagery makes more sense to us it's more modern in a way yeah um but in genesis hopefully we're going to be able to keep going all right let us if we can offer this look that makes more sense now and uh, make genesis um more coherent for us instead of this abstract weird mysterious thing because it's just a story So we'll keep going with this story next time. Genesis 16 um, and 17 offer some really interesting details concerning Hagar and the covenant again. Um, Things are going to start getting cut off here soon as far as parts of people's bodies. I'm just preparing you because the conversation's happening. (laughs) Um, We're going there. Sorry. Uh, And then we're going to revisit Saddam and Gomorrah again. And um, uh, keep going with the covenant so yeah hopefully you all enjoyed the show we'll see you next time